Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. Another day, another strike. Washington Post workers walk out for one day. Over 1,000 DHL Teamsters go on an unfair labor practice strike. And today on the show, we check in with Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio and labor lawyer Andy Strom. Welcome to the Friday, December 8th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify and Pandora. Senator Sherrod Brown will be joining us from Washington today, and he's a happy camper because he is on the right side of the fence when it comes to Amtrak. He wants to expand Amtrak in the state of Ohio. So what he did, he partnered with the Federal Railroad Administration, and they just announced they're choosing four Ohio routes as priorities for expansion. We've got uh, Cleveland to Columbus, Dayton and Cincinnati. There's uh, Cleveland, Toledo, and Detroit. And then Chicago, Fort Wayne, Indiana, Columbus, Pittsburgh. That's the Midwest corridor through Lima, Marysville, Columbus, Newark. I mean, this is amazing. It's going to be a real interesting scenario here if it all works. I mean, we've talked about this before. You may recall. About a dozen years ago, they were talking about a rail system in the state of Ohio, but then Governor Kasich said no. Well, they've got right now about a half million dollars for each announced corridor, and these are all made possible by the bipartisan infrastructure law that Senator Brown helped write and pass, with a lot of labor protections, I might add. So we'll talk about that. We'll also talk about steel this week. The senator called on the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, to work with labor and industry to find a workable compromise when finalizing three proposed rules targeting the steel industry and related supply chains to ensure that the rules do not cost American jobs or undermine national security. You know, steel is important to the national defense. And then you got the regulation, sometimes a little too much costing jobs. And in this case, this would be union jobs. We're talking about steel workers here. So uh, Senator Brown will be our first guest. Andrew Strom will be joining us later in the show. He's no stranger to America's workforce. He's been filling in for Joyce Goldstein. And Joyce should be back with us next year. She's been very, very busy with the bricklayers and allied craft workers. She serves there as general counsel. Andy, though, union lawyer for more than 25 years. He is associate general counsel for the Service Employees International, local 32BJ in New York City. Big union, big union. But he does not speak on behalf of 32BJ. He is a contributor to the On Labor blog, which was put together by the Harvard Law School. And Andrews, well, he's been the author of a number of publications. He writes a whole lot about the National Labor Relations Board. And what we're going to talk about today is uh, what the NLRB has done in the Biden administration. And uh, essentially, they have overturned rulings from the previous administration, which would be 
the Trump administration because they just went a little too far. The other part of the story is how the NLRB's decisions can be overturned in federal courts. And as you know, there's a lot of very anti-union judges on those federal courts. So what happens in the labor board gets turned over in federal courts. And we'll talk about that with uh, Andrew Strom. Now, a brief look into the world of labor. The segment brought to you by Boyd Watterson Asset Management. You can find more at BoydWatterson.com. 700 workers at the Washington Post started a 24-hour unfair labor practice strike yesterday over the company's refusal to bargain in good faith. After 18 months of bargaining with Washington Post guild workers, including reporters, editors, cartoonists, visual journalists, advertising salespeople, circulation drivers, they all walked out. Despite a year and a half of efforts, management has refused to bargain in good faith for a fair contract that keeps up with inflation and the post-competition. According to the News Guild, during the same time period, because of the previous publisher's poor business strategy, the company laid off nearly 40 people. Then this fall, they offered voluntary buyouts to another 240 staffers. Well, now... The Post has threatened layoffs if they don't get enough people to leave. Democracy, according to the Guild, will die in darkness if there are fewer Post employees making the critical journalism that keeps our communities informed and holds our public officials accountable. Boy, they are dead right on that one. The 24-hour unfair labor practice strike included workers in Washington, D.C., San Francisco, New York, and other cities across the country and around the globe that included a public campaign to inform readers about what's at stake. So the union asked readers to send a letter to the publisher. Don't cross a picket line in Washington. Don't give any interviews to the Washington Post. And don't even click on their website all day yesterday. We'll get uh, John Schloys on to talk about uh, how effective this uh, one-day strike was at the Washington Post yesterday. Meanwhile, more than 1,100 DHL Express Teamsters, this would be at the Cincinnati Northern Kentucky International Airport, they went on strike Wednesday to protest unfair labor practices and demand the company negotiate a fair contract. For too long, DHL has walked all over our rights to collective action, said Gina Kemp, one of the uh, ramp and tug workers, we were forced to go on strike and put an end to the company's illegal anti-union behavior. The company's repeated acts of disrespect from the tarmac where we work to the bargaining table leave me and my co-workers with no choice but to withhold our labor. Now, the ramp and tug workers at uh, DHL voted to organize with the Teamsters. Now, this is not all DHL. This is the Cincinnati Northern Kentucky Airport. They voted to organize with the Teamsters in April. The union has filed numerous unfair labor practices with the Labor Board during and since the organizing campaign, including for companies' retaliation against pro-union workers. The NLRB is prosecuting the company civilly, by the way, for its illegal actions. Now, mind you, DHL Express is a highly profitable division of Deutsche Post AG, 
a publicly traded global company based in Germany, DHL Express alone recorded $4.3 billion in operating profit last year from their worldwide operations. The parent company's revenue topped $100 billion. Bill Hamilton, director of the Teamsters Express division, said DHL bosses are pocketing billions as many of these workers live paycheck to paycheck. You can find more on this at Teamsters.org. All right, quick break. When we come back, Senator Sherrod Brown will be joining us. This is America's Workforce. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. The Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council, consisting of eight ironworker local unions in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan. We build the skylines and bridges along the Great Lakes. With more work than ever before, the Great Lakes District Council is actively searching out the next great ironworker. Whether it's building the next Intel plant or constructing a bridge to safely connect our great cities along the lake. So join the Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council today. Find out how and learn more about the council by visiting IWDistrictCouncil.com. This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit SurveyAndBallotSystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at cwa-union.org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The, the United, United Steelworkers. Steel the largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the U.S., US Canada, Canada, and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steel workers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at UAW.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the Ohio Federation of Teachers. We're waiting in the wings here for uh, Senator Sherrod Brown calling us from Washington. In the meantime, I want to promote what we did on the show yesterday, and that was a wonderful conversation with uh, Scott Paul. Scott is the president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, one of our proud sponsors here on the show, AmericanManufacturing.org. One of the things he talked about was the Made in America Holiday Gift Guide. And if you're looking for a gift, I mean, Christmas is right around the corner. This is the place to go. Go to American Manufacturing. .org, and you could find gifts made in every state, all 50 states, District of Columbia, as well as Puerto Rico. And, and they do this for good reason. There's a lot of people, they do polling on this, and it's increasing every year. Over 80% of American adults 
prefer to purchase holiday gifts made in the United States. And often they say, where do I go? Where do I go? Well, you have this opportunity to start right there. These are all American-made gifts. Some of them are made by Union Brothers and Sisters. So do check that out, AmericanManufacturing.org. Now, I also want to promote Union Made in America, and I've talked about this on the show many, many times. There's an organization based out in California called Labor 411, and they are aligned with the AFL-CIO. And uh, this is an opportunity for use to support our union brothers and sisters. And, you know, during the holidays, everybody's cooking. And what's on the list? Turkey, ham, dinner rolls, vegetables. I'm just going to run down a few here. Food and commercial workers. They process uh, butterball turkeys. Tyson for hams. Dinner rolls. There's uh, Pillberry croissant rolls. Sarah Lee. This one I never heard of, but it sounds interesting. Bimbo dinner rolls. Bimbo dinner rolls. Vegetables. There's a bird's eye. Del Monte. Dole. Hanover Foods. Orida. Cranberries. Dole. Let's see. Side dishes. Betty Crocker. Kraft Mac and Cheese. Dessert. Cool Whip. Let's see. Uh, bake Shops. There's a Kroger. Fred Meyer. Dave's Supermarket. Albertsons. And obviously, there's a Spirits. I mean, you got a lot of beers that are Distributed by the Teamsters, wine, here's um, Almonden, Charles Krug, Chatel, St. Michelle, uh, Columbia Crest, Gallo, Turning Leaf. All this is posted if you go to Labor 411 or you go to, to the uh, AFL-CIO website, you'll find all that information and more. All right, let's go to Washington right now and welcome one of our regulars. He's been a contributor to America's workforce for, my gosh, over a generation. That would be Senator Sherrod Brown. And this week... A generation? A generation? A generation? A generation. <laughs> well, it's it's longer than that. We started... All uh, right, never started. mind. Let's get, let's get over uh, the substance of this let's show. Let's get man. on with the show. Okay, I get it. Recently, the uh, U.S. Department of Transportation, recently being a couple of days ago, the Federal Railroad Administration selected four key routes in Ohio as priorities for Amtrak expansion. Senator, this has your handprint all over it. What's uh, what's the story here? Yeah, uh, no coincidence there. Um, yeah, we've been working on this for a long time. You may remember uh, we got help a couple well, a decade ago. Proposal from from the uh, Federal Transit Administration and John K. Governor Kasich just he turned the money back. It was going to be a lot of investment in rail, mostly Cleveland, Columbus, Cincinnati, Dayton, but also now. And so we've been working the administration for some time on this. So it will eventually not not yet. It's a study now, but you do the study and then you and you try to speed up the study and then you look at these rail routes and Cleveland, Columbus, Cincinnati, Dayton, but also Columbus sort of through from Washington to Columbus with some stops in eastern Ohio, then some stops in west, northwest Ohio out of Columbus uh, towards towards Chicago, towards Indianapolis and Chicago. So there is real opportunity here. Um, they're they're going to be good union jobs, uh, everything from can we get some rail cars made in this state uh, to, you know, obviously the track work and the conductors and the engineers and the staff and all that. So um, it's a, it's a good opportunity for, for Ohio for job growth and good, you know, good blue collar jobs, good white collar jobs uh, will help the state. 
You know, Amtrak never took off here in the Midwest. Now it's booming in the Northeast. I mean, do you see it going in that direction? Obviously, if you if you build it right, we're gonna be we're gonna be very viable here. Is that is that the consensus? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we'll never we'll never be the East Coast Amtrak because there there are so many people and stops close together. I mean, the population from New York to Washington, Wilmington, Philadelphia, Baltimore. All Newark, all these pretty big cities along the route were were not that densely populated. But I, 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 I've the problem with Amtrak in Ohio is the trains are even the even the tracks we have, the routes we have, they're once a day. Uh, they get slowed down because of the big railroads. And from this show, you know how much uh, we appreciate the big railroads and the damage they do to the state by uh, from derailment. Uh, and uh, and all the other things that have happened with CSX and Norfolk Southern. But Amtrak, in the end, it shouldn't just be for the coast. So we do this right. The trains will come more frequently. They'll be faster. There'll be improved routing and improved tracks. Uh, as you, you may remember, Flash, I, when I was a single parent, my daughters and I would every year get on the train in either Cleveland or Lorraine um, and go out west. On a, we'd visit a national park in a baseball stadium, go out west for 10 days, my two daughters and I. It's a great way to travel, but it's only, it's only once a, a day, and it's weird times you get on in Ohio because the trains are, are timed to leave New York in the morning, get to Chicago, or leave Chicago in the morning, get to New York, and when they pass through northern Ohio, as, they, as they've been now, uh, it just doesn't work very well, but we need to scale it up and invest real dollars, and eventually, uh, you know, people start buying tickets. It's self-sustaining. So it's a, it's a, it's a transportation option people ought to have. That's what we want. Well, as you know, we're uh, sponsored. One of our many sponsors has been the United Steelworkers. And I understand uh, you are, of course, and you always have been standing up for the steel industry, making sure that the jobs stay here and we get more jobs. What's going on in that regard, Senator? I'm working with steelworkers and especially Cleveland Cliffs, a big steel company in Northern Ohio, a national, big national steel company, uh, to make sure these jobs don't go overseas. And uh, we know there's a there's a couple of environmental rules. And uh, as you know, in this show, I've I've never thought that you either choose good good jobs or good environmental policy. But I've always known you could do both. Cleveland Cliffs. And the steel workers at those plants uh, make literally the cleanest steel, makes cleanest steel processing process in the world. Um, so we want to make sure these jobs stay here. I'm working with the federal government on behalf of steel industry, steel workers, to make sure these jobs stay here. Because they go overseas, uh, the Chinese aren't exactly making clean steel. Uh, it's the U.S. has led on that. We want to continue that. We want these jobs to stay here, just like. Uh, we've talked in the show about about electric vehicles. Uh, China's going to dump a zillion electric vehicles in this country if we don't build them here, and if we don't, and we're going to make sure they stay here and their union member, their union jobs. And that's um, you know, people can say a lot of things, but I don't want these electric vehicles are going to come in the future, and I don't want them made in China. I want them made by union workers, and preferably northern Ohio, but I'll take anywhere as long as it's in this country. We'll leave it on that note. Senator, always a pleasure having you. You take care. Keep up the fight. Okay, brother? And you too. Thanks, Flash. See you, buddy. Boy, I wish we could get some more time with him, but he is on a very tight schedule, and he tries to get to as many shows as possible to get his message out, which is a union message, no doubt about that. Came across a very interesting story out of California from the National Nurses United. They're based in California. They have chapters around the country. 
We're talking about 2,000 Ascension nurses that went on strike this week. And after they went on strike, the management locked them out. This is a crazy story. This is in Texas and Kansas at three Ascension hospitals. The nurses went forward with a historic one-day strike on Wednesday to protest unsafe conditions that management has failed to remedy. The facilities include Ascension Seton Medical Center in Austin, Texas, and nurses at Ascension Via Christi St. Francis and Ascension Via Christi St. Joseph Hospitals, two of them in Wichita, Kansas. Now, the nurses gave management notice last month, November 22nd, that they would strike. Two days later, management told the nurses that they would be locked out for an additional three days if they went on strike. National Nurses United condemned the decision by management as an apparent ploy to intimidate nurses from speaking out against the conditions driving their decision to strike. Got a comment here from Chris Fuentes, RN, at the hospital in Austin, Texas. She said, by locking nurses out for three days, Ascension is sending the message once again that providing patients with excellent care is not their top priority. As nurses, we are very focused on our patients and winning a contract that sets the stage for optimal care. It's high time for management to prioritize patients and reach an agreement that accomplishes this. Another comment here from Shelly Rader. Shelly is an RN at Ascension Via Christi St. Francis in Wichita. She says, if Ascension management thinks that locking us out for three days will make us back down from demanding optimal care for our patients, well, they're mistaken. Advocating for our patients in a contract that supports their receiving optimal care is a sacred duty for nurses. We will not be intimidated. We are ready to return to work and ready to reach a strong agreement. Another comment here. This is from Carol Samsel, RN at the uh, ICU at Ascension via Christie St. Joseph in Wichita. Carol says Ascension's decision to lock nurses out for three more days after our one day strike shows how they'd rather use their vast resources to delay improvements than to invest in the care of our patients. Rather than listen to the nurses, management is stubbornly delaying improvements in care our patients deserve. They may think they are punishing the nurses, but they're actually damaging their reputation with the public. Now, the nurses are bargaining their first union contracts. Throughout bargaining, nurses have emphasized the importance of finding solutions for safe staffing and nurse recruitment and retention. Well, pretty, pretty critical issues, right? So the strike was designed to call attention to, number one, equipment issues. At one of the hospitals, this is the one in Austin, there is a lack of functional IV pumps, hospital gowns, blankets, and thermometers. There's staffing issues in Wichita. This is St. Francis and St. Joseph's. Management unsafe floating policy means nurses are assigned to units where they do not usually work and may not have the training or expertise to care for those patients. In Austin, 
management is proposing that labor and delivery nurses with as little as 18 months of experience be assigned to charge roles, which are typically given to experienced nurses in safely staffed hospitals as they are responsible for the smooth functioning of their units and act as resource nurses. Taylor Crittenden is an RN in Austin at one of the hospitals. Taylor says, we are constantly running out of clean hospital gowns, thermometers, even blankets for newborn babies. We're also dealing with broken IV pumps and hospital-provided phones are not working properly, which can delay vital communications between staff in situations where timely intervention is crucial. Lisa Watson, another nurse, she's in Wichita. She says, we are striking because management continues to float nurses to units where they do not usually work and where they do not necessarily have expertise or experience. She points out, you wouldn't send a cancer patient to a pediatric doctor. So why, why would you send a pediatric nurse to work in oncology? But this is what they're doing. This is, this is insane. It really is. The uh, conditions, by the way, at those uh, hospitals, um, they're under investigation right now. In February of this year, there was a letter sent to the CEO by U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin calling into question Ascension's nonprofit status and mission-driven values. Two separate reports, one in January this year from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, discussing disruptions to patient care, long wait times in the emergency department, delayed surgeries and staff concerns about patient safety. And in December, this was a year ago, the New York Times did an investigation into Ascension staffing conditions, reporting that the hospital spent years reducing its staffing levels in an effort to improve profitability even though the chain is a nonprofit organization. By the way, Ascension is the second largest and wealthiest nonprofit and Catholic health system in the country. In fiscal year 2021, Ascension reported a net income of more than $6.4 billion, and the system CEO took home a compensation package worth more than $13 million. Additionally, according to a Securities and Exchange Commission filing from last year, Ascension runs an investment company that manages more than $41 billion. So we're talking about a nonprofit hospital managing an investment company? And they can't pay their nurses? This is an amazing story. I have to uh, thank National Nurses United for... uh, for coming out with this story. Again, they're on strike, well, for one day on Wednesday, and then the company, a very rich company, locks them out for three days. And who's suffering? The patients in that hospital. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Andrew Strom on behalf of On Labor, talking about labor in 2023. Coming up next. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferrans. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. 
The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. Attention members of the Heat and Frost Insulators Union who are interested in traveling. Central Ohio has more construction projects on the books than anywhere in the U.S. Mega projects, large and medium-sized jobs are creating more work than our local 50 brothers and sisters can handle. Projects like Intel, the Honda LG battery plant, and multiple data centers for Facebook, Google, and Amazon offer union wages, overtime, exciting incentives. Local 50 is seeking union travelers to meet the needs of its signatory contractors who can put you to work immediately. If you're a member in good standing and interested in the work opportunities in Central Ohio, visit insulators50.com forward slash AWF travel for more information. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. You can find more at ifpte.org. America's Workforce appreciates our sponsor, the Columbus Central Ohio Building and Construction Trades Council, who represents more than 18,000 workers from 19 affiliated local unions and district councils. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where you can find more at teamster.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. And when you get an opportunity, just sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. Well, the year is almost at a close, and today what we're going to do is take a look at uh, what happened in labor law over 2023 we've seen a lot of organizing a lot of people got good contracts teamsters uaw writers guild sag astra but let's take a deep dive into what happened at the national labor relations board and uh, what we have seen here is an i guess an unwinding of the previous administration andrew strom has been a union lawyer for more than 25 years he's the associate general counsel for Local 32BJ of the Service Employees International Union, but he's not speaking on their behalf. He is a contributor to the On Labor blog, and this is a service of the Harvard Law School. Get a lot of my information from them for the show, onlabor.org. Andrew, welcome back to uh, America's Workforce. So uh, why don't we just talk about well, what what happened this year? And it's been uh, it's there's been a lot going on. I'm going to let you pick it up from there. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I think that the story of the year is really you know how much um, the Biden appointees on the NLRB uh, had to spend their time and energy trying to undo the damage by Trump's appointees. And I think it's you know it's so frustrating to me. You know, I keep reading about how you know workers and even union members support Trump. And I just feel like if people understood just how bad Trump has been on worker issues, um, you know, that might change. Um, And the other part of the issue is that, you know, not only did the LRB have to just, you know, spend this time kind of just trying to get back to where things stood. You know, I wrote at one point, you know, things weren't so great in labor law 
on January 20th, 2017, you know, when Trump took office, uh-huh. there was still, you know, if you talk to me on that day, you know, if, um, you know, if Hillary Clinton had won, I would have said, well, there's a big agenda of things that need to improve, you know, and then things just got worse for the next four years. And so now, you know, Biden's folks, you know, I thought about some of the big decisions of the year and they're really just trying to return things, you know, sort of move the clock back, you know, undo the damage from the last four years. And, um, you know, one of the things that's also, you know, a real source of tension this year is that, you know, not only Trump's appointees on the LRB are gone, but Trump's, actually all but one, but Trump's judges and other Republican judges just linger on. And so, you know, the Republicans have stacked the federal courts with such sort of hard right judges and on worker issues, you know, if it's a close case and even some cases that I wouldn't have thought of as close cases, they're just reliably anti-worker. You know, and one illustration of that is a case I wrote about very recently about Tesla and um, their ban on union t-shirts. In that case, um, the, um, you know, going back to 1945, 1945, the Supreme Court decision, the Supreme Court says prohibitions against the wearing of union insignia are an illegal interference with the right to organize, right? Workers have a right to wear, um, you know, any form of union insignia on the job. And since then, you know, of course, employers have been trying to push back and have succeeded in getting this ever-growing list of what the NLRB calls special circumstances where they can justify restrictions on union buttons. And, you know, some of them make sense. Like, you know, there are particular places, you know, a food um, processing company, you know, where maybe, you know, you don't want somebody wearing a sticker uh, on your clothes because you don't want that sticker falling into the food that they're making, you know, or, um, you know, or in the Tesla case, actually, um, you know, they were, had a legitimate concern about people scratching the vehicles, right? So, but, so Tesla has a policy that you have to wear either a black shirt that they issue or a plain black shirt if you get your supervisor's approval. And when um, the UAW started organizing at Tesla, workers started wearing black shirts with the UAW logo on them. Um, and the, um, and that was fine for a few months. And then Tesla decided to crack down on it. And Tesla started disciplining the people who are wearing the black UAW t-shirts. UAW files um, charges with the NLRB and it goes to trial. And at the trial, Tesla says, yeah, well, we have two reasons for doing this. One is what they call visual management. And they had a manager explain, you know, there's a lot of people that are walking through the factory and, you know, the production workers are wearing black. I know that those are the people that belong there and, you know, which makes a certain amount of sense. But the judge said, okay, but if you're wearing a black shirt with the UAW logo, you know, you can still see, (laughs) you know, it's not like, you know, it's still a black shirt. Um, Mm -hmm. The shirt didn't become red because, you know, it has the UAW logo on it. And then the other thing they said was they said, well, we also cracked down because we had been noticing that there had been an increase in damage to the seats. And so, again, you know, when it was at the trial, you know, subject to cross-examination, the witnesses said, well, 
we actually got to the bottom of that, and it had to do with people not having the covers on their tools. In other words, the T-shirts weren't damaging the seats, as you could imagine, because how could a T-shirt, you know, rip a seat, right? <laughs> so anyway, yeah. So the so the NLRB um, then takes this case as a vehicle to talk more generally about uniforms and um, and dress codes and how that over, you know, the interplay between those and, uh, you know, and the right to wear union insignia. And they just say, look, you can't just say, I have a dress code or a uniform policy, therefore you have no right to wear union insignia. You still have to show that there's some, you know, reason beyond that, some circumstance which makes it, um, you know, inappropriate for people to wear uh, you know, union buttons or, or insignia. Uh, and, you know, it, it, there could, it could be the case that there's a genuine reason for, you know, where everybody wearing the same uniform. And so if you, you know, wear a uniform that's different from everybody else's, you know, that could create some form of, you know, that, that could create some problem. But, you know, it's not enough to just say, I have a, I have a dress code, therefore I win. The case then goes to the fifth. So then the thing is, the case goes to the Fifth Circuit, which the country is divided into geographic units for the circuit courts. There are uh, 12 circuit courts around the country, 11 different parts of the country plus the District of Columbia. And one of the problems with the National Labor Relations Board Act is that uh, employers can bring a case to a court in any circuit where they do business. So the Tesla case arose in California and logically should have gone to the Ninth Circuit, which covers California. But the Ninth Circuit has a lot of Democratic appointed judges on it. The Fifth Circuit, which covers Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi, is stacked with the most right-wing judges in the country. I mean, they're so far right that they make the Supreme Court justices look moderate. I mean, wow. in fact, the Supreme Court has several times actually had to sort of claw them back a little bit and say, hey, guys, you know, you're, uh, you're going a little too far here. Um, and so, so anyway, the case goes to the, the Fifth Circuit, and the Fifth Circuit says, What's the matter with the uniform? You know, uniforms, uh, you know, promote, um, you know, uh, joie de vivre among the workers and, you know, serve all kinds of good, valuable, important functions uh, for employers. Meanwhile, Tesla didn't make those arguments, right? Tesla didn't say everybody has to wear the same shirt because, you know, we've done studies and show that if everybody wears exactly the same shirt, you know, our productivity increases. I mean, that wasn't Tesla's argument. Tesla didn't say, you know, it improves morale if everybody wears the exact same shirt. Uh, you know, Tesla made those two arguments, one about visual management, one about um, the seats getting damaged, and both of those turned out, you know, to be, um, you know, not accurate uh, or not valid. And so, um, you know, so I think this is just... You know, oh, and then the other thing that uh, that they did that this this Fifth Circuit said was, um, 
the Supreme Court has made up this doctrine in the last couple of years called major questions, you know, which is kind of a fallback when, you know, the regular um, rules of uh, statutory interpretation don't let them reach their favorite result, right? So they can't, they, when they look at those, you know, the words in the statute and they're like, um, yeah, okay, that's still not gonna help us get where we wanna go. They made up this doctrine called major questions. And major questions says, well, we think this issue is too important for an agency to decide. It's too, you know, we don't think Congress would have given uh, this agency the power to decide this very important question. Fifth Circuit says, well, you know, this idea that, you know, this National Labor Relations Board could tell employers that they can't um, have a dress code, which isn't, of course, what they said at all, but uh, it's, it, we, don't, we think that's too important for the NLRB, and so that's not going to fly. And we're going to say, you know, we're going to impose our own judgment, which is dress codes are always fine or uniform policies are always fine uh, and always a defense to any claim that uh, that workers are denied the right to wear, uh, you know, their form of insignia that they want to wear. I mean, that was the other issue was Tesla had said, well, workers could wear stickers which it, it turned out they had never told workers they could wear stickers. Workers, I mean, some other workers had worn stickers and not gotten disciplined for wearing them. But, you know, the workers who were told, take your T-shirts off, weren't told, oh, and by the way, you can wear a sticker if you want. Um, but, you know, of course, even if that was true, a sticker isn't exactly a substitute for a T-shirt, right? You can give a worker a T-shirt, you can give the worker a t-shirt, the workers can wear the t-shirts again and again and again and again. Uh, you know, the stickers fall off, the stickers have to be, you know, constantly replaced. Um, and so, you know, it's not exactly, um, you know, they're not exactly the same. But at any rate, uh, I think that that's just, um, you know, just an illustration of what we're likely to see over the next year as well. And of course, what we've seen in the past is even when the NLRB, and you know, and this I think explains people's frustrations, you know, people, you know, vote for Biden, they want to see changes, they want to see worker-friendly policies, and I think it, people, you know, it's exciting when Biden gets up and talks about the right to organize and says how he supports the UAW in their contract fight, but, you know, they want to see concrete changes in policy and, you know, one of the problems with our system is there's so many different <laughs> checks on that, right, where, yeah. um, you know, and then you have this, you know, the judiciary, which is just controlled still uh, by the far right. And so everything that the NLRB does, you know, we talked about, I think it was the last time I was on or another time I was on the joint employer rule, um, which, of course, is going to be challenged in the courts. And every little step that the NLRB makes, and they're all, you know, pretty incremental by themselves, but they matter. Um, and, but every time that the NLRB does something worker friendly, the bosses run to the courts and say, uh, you know, come to our aid. Mm -hmm. So, so, so you, you win the battle, but not the war. 
That's kind yeah. of what we're talking about here. Andrew Strom joining us on our live line today, and he is a contributor to the On Labor blog. Do check that out, onlabor.org. We'll continue with Andrew right after this. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Layuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Layuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, delivering critical services such as healthcare and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with Layuna. Find out what it takes for Layuna to keep America running at Layuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Steelworkers. You can find more at USW.org. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at BoydWatterson.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Ironworkers. You can find more at ironworkers.org. A great union requires a reliable election system. Survey and Ballot Systems is a trusted election partner with more than 30 years of expertise in managing union elections. By partnering with SBS, your union can ensure it gets an auditable process and a high level of customer service. SBS is here to help you conduct your union vote securely, transparently, and with trust building always in mind. Visit SurveyAndBalladSystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Heat and Frost Insulators Labor Management Cooperative Trust. Find out more at insulators.org forward slash LMCT. America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and sign and display industry workers. They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American. America's Workforce is presented by the Labor's International Union of North America. Feel the power right now at liuna.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the United Labor Agency. You can find more at ulagency.org. Let's go back to our live line and rejoin Andrew Strom. On behalf of the On Labor blog, we're talking about uh, labor board rulings and the court's role. And Andrew, I mean, you did a good example there of the Tesla case where the workers are trying to wear UAW T-shirts and Tesla said no. And there's a a, a conservative court saying, well, okay, we're going to side with Tesla on this whole thing. I'm just wondering, has this been the case for many, many years? Because, you know, we are... We got a labor-friendly, a union-friendly National Labor Relations Board. In fact, their general counsel comes from the Communication Workers Union of America. And uh, they're, they're trying to do the right thing for workers. But then again, you got the courts shutting them down. Is, is this the normal kind of process here or what? Or is, is there some history on this? What do you know about that? Sure. I mean, I mean to some extent, yes. I mean, to some extent, you know, there, you can go back over time and see uh, – courts sort of trying to, you know, second guess or rein in uh, the NLRB. But the problem has gotten worse, you know, in the last few years because the judges on the courts have become 
more and more right-wing ideologues. You know, it used to be the case, and I think this is also part of, I mean, I, I once wrote something about, you know, the vicious cycle here that workers face, right, which is that as unions have gotten weaker, uh, employers have gotten more emboldened. And yeah. in the 1970s, there's this famous um, Powell memo. I don't know if people know about this. Um, Lewis Powell, who was a, before he was a, ju- he was a justice on the Supreme Court appointed by Nixon in the 70s. And before that, uh, he was a lawyer for the Chamber of Commerce. And he had written this memo, uh, which was saying that business was you know, viewed poorly in the country and business needed to do more to improve its image and create think tanks and, um, you know, do all kinds of things that, you know, to sort of promote the free market um, ideology. And the thing about the Powell memo that's kind of fascinating is if you actually read it, what he's saying is we need to be more like unions and we need to have the respect that unions have. And in the Powell memo itself, he talks about the important values that he thinks you know, guide the country or should guide the country. And one of them is respect for unions. So he was not, you know, I mean, it's sort of, he created this monster or a lot of people think he created this monster of these right-wing, you know, anti-regulatory think tanks that are, you know, flooding the courts with, you know, briefs and arguments and bringing these cases to sort of bring down administrative agencies. But actually back in the seventies, the people who were saying that still had this modicum of respect for unions and for the right to organize. But then over the years, as you know, since then, as unions have gotten weaker, the right wing has gotten more and more virulently anti-union and they don't even acknowledge that unions have a proper role anymore. And so the judges and justices, you know, at the courts of appeals at the Supreme court uh, who are getting appointed, are people who just have no concept of the important role that unions play and even of how labor law, the labor law works. You know, when one of the cases, one of the big Supreme Court cases of the last few years, this case called Epic Systems, which is a case where um, this, the National Labor Relations Board had held, a lot of you know, employers are now trying to make workers instead of do things collectively, um, and instead of having access to the courts, they say, you have to go to private arbitration, right? If you have a problem with us, you go to private arbitration, and each worker has to bring their own separate case. Workers can't band together and bring a case together. And the NLRB said, you can't do that. Workers have a right to engage in concerted activity, and going back to you know, the earliest days of the National Labor Relations Act in the 1930s, we've always held that going to court is one of those concerted activities that workers have a right to engage in together. And so the case goes up to the Supreme Court and very predictably, the Supreme Court overturned the the NLRB on this. But one of the things that was pretty um, telling to me was Justice Gorsuch wrote the opinion And he just completely misrepresented how the National Labor Relations Act works. He said the National Labor Relations Act has, you know, sets up all these careful rules about how 
um, you know, collective bargaining and organizing is supposed to work. So if it meant to, you know, if Congress meant them to have something to say about workers um, bringing cases together in court, you would have expected the law to have the same kind of careful rules about that. But that's just not true. There aren't, you know, the National Labor Relations Act is written in these very broad strokes. And the way those, you know, when we talk about this is the law about, you know, employers, for example, in bargaining have to provide the union with information, right? The union has a right to get information um, when they're in bargaining with the employer. That doesn't, it doesn't say that in the text of the law. What, where that comes from is a decision by the NLRB upheld by the Supreme Court saying, yeah, if you have a right to bargain, you have a right to get information. And so, you know, that's a sort of long, <laughs> long too long-winded way of answering, but I mean, the, the courts are just so, um, you know, they've moved so far to the right um, and are just so, um, you know, dominated by these real sort of anti, you know, regulatory, uh, anti-worker, anti-union ideologues that the sort of normal give and take, yeah, there, yeah, sure, you know, you to just get back to your question, like, there's always been a kind of give and take between the NLRB and the courts about, you know, did the NLRB go too far, you know, uh, did they, you know, did they properly uh, take into account previous decisions, you know, did there, is their decision uh, based on the, you know, the uh, substantial evidence, um, you know, there's always been courts having some degree of review of NLRB decisions, but now you just have, you know, these, you know, sort of far-right ideologues who are just trying to impose their own ideological vision. And so you yeah. see it more and more. And we're talking about positions for life, federal courts, U.S. Supreme yeah. Court. So, so those those decisions <laughs> are going to be there for a long, long time. Yeah. Andrew and, Strom, thank you so much for joining us today on behalf of the On Labor blog. Good dissection of uh, what happened this year, and we'll see what happens next year. You take care. Best of the holidays to you, and we'll we'll talk in the new year. Okay, brother. Okay. Thank you. All right, that'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Coming up on Monday, we're going to hear from the general president of our presenting sponsor, Labor's International Union of North America, and the new guy at the Alabama AFL-CIO. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful weekend. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce radio podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.